0: You are listening to the Sermon Audio from 12th Street Baptist Church in Rainbow City, Alabama. More information about our church can be found online at www.12th.co. It is good to be with you this morning. And uh, let me make a couple of statements before we get through uh, looking at the, before we get into looking at the Word together. But if you would go ahead and turn in your Bibles to the book of Jonah, as you see on the screen, that's where we're going to be today and for the next few weeks And uh, I hope that if you feel like you're pretty comfortable with Jonah and knowing about it, that you'll kind of release that for a little while as we see how Jonah points us to Jesus. I think we'll see some good things in this today. But let me start off by saying this. It has been a very difficult week for many in our faith family. We have a lot who are going through times of sorrow and hurting. Um, in fact, um, the flowers that you see before us, the announcements we had made prior were, was going to be for the flowers here for Charles's day, last day here, his reception that's going to be after this. Those are now going to be back here in the, um, the the room where the reception will be in the dining hall. These flowers are from the Hall family, and uh, we're supposed to have other flowers. I'm not sure where they are uh, for them right now, and also for the Keenum family that we're here because of their losses. Now, it's not really a loss because these men were men of the Lord. And to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so it is a celebration homegoing for them, but it is hard for us. And we have experienced a lot of suffering and heartache in many ways as a faith family over the last several months in very personal, individual, and corporate ways. And um, we also are on a weekend where we are not really celebrating per se, but in a way we are memorializing those who have fought for our country so that we could be here freely today worshiping, not cowering in fear somewhere because we don't have to worry about somebody coming in the doors to stop us from worshiping the one true God. And so I wanna take a minute to pray for us, to pray for our families, to pray for the families of those who have lost loved ones who have served in our armed services for our freedoms, And then I want to pray for our time in the word. So if you would, just bow your heads with me as we begin our time in prayer. Father, there are too many things. There's too many things, Lord, on our hearts today to name them all. There are too many hurtings and sorrows. Too many things of anguish and difficulty that many of our loved ones have been going through. But Lord, you know them every one. Not a one has escaped you, not one has surprised you, and not one can overcome or be greater than your mercy and your grace. Just like Justin's son said, you are bigger, Lord. So Lord, we thank you for that. We pray you envelop the families that have experienced great sorrow and hurting in the last few days. Continue to carry them through as you have been, please, Lord, and and manifest your presence in a way that is undeniable, that you bring the peace that surpasses understanding, the comfort that only you can bring by your comforter, the Holy Spirit, and that, Lord, you would drive all of us to finding our hope in Jesus. Father, I also pray for the families of those who have lost loved ones in battles and wars throughout the ages in order to secure our freedoms to be able to worship you without fear to be able to worship you freely in a way that many do not have the opportunity for. So we thank you for that and we pray for those around the world who are serving now, that you would protect them and use them in mighty ways for your glory as well. And Father, lastly this morning, I pray that in our time in the word that you would be magnified today, that your son Jesus would be lifted high, that we would be encouraged, that we'd be convicted of our sin, that you would lead us to repentance And that we, Lord, would become more like Jesus through your Spirit's movement in our lives as we look into your Word, and as it goes into our hearts, we know it never returns void. So, Lord, we thank you for your Word, and we thank you most of all for Jesus. It's in his blessed and holy name I pray these things. Amen. Let's look at Jonah chapter 1. I think that uh, if you haven't read it in a long time, you're going to be refreshed a little bit. And although I... uh, uh, I'm standing before you where we started off with the bumper video that has a whale sound in it. Uh, that is actually not what we see in the scriptures. I told Luke I was probably going to say that. Decided I wasn't. Decided I had to. Uh, I, <laughs> I'm too much of a biblicist to sit here and let you think that we have words in the Hebrew that indicate that it was a whale. We don't know it was a big fish. And I know that's hard for some of us to believe. We think this is more of a fable, but let me just say this. If we can believe that a man can die and then raise from death three days later on purpose, as planned, then we can believe a fish could swallow a guy and spit him out on the shore. If he can overcome death and hell and Satan for us, we can believe in any miracle. And miracles aren't proven by science. Miracles are sometimes examined by science. But science is in the, in, in, the, in the way of taking something that happens multiple times and trying to understand it. And miracles are things that don't happen multiple times. So it's hard to examine those things. And it takes just as much faith to believe miracles don't happen as it does to take faith to believe that miracles do happen. And this is a supernatural activity that's not normal, but is by no means outside the scope and boundaries of what types of miracles we've seen in the world. And so if we can believe that Jesus was raised from the dead on the third day, he died for our sins, and that he has victory over death for us, then we can know this story is true as well. There's nothing that indicates that this is a fable. In fact, it seems to be written in first person, by a man that has historical precedence in the other parts of Scripture. we seems to be that this might have been around 800 B.C. It could have been a little bit later than that. We're not exactly sure on that, but it could be around that time. We know that it seems that Jonah was a contemporary of Elijah and Elisha, and so that seems to kind of fit in well. You can go and find other places in Scripture that mention Jonah. And this seems to be written by the guy who would tell the story because nobody else would know all the details. We know the first time this story is referenced is actually about 300 BC. And so we know it's at least that old, but most likely closer to 800 BC. So this is a real story and it has real significance for us. And it was in a real setting in history. It has real application for the people of that day. And it has real application for us today. So let's look at the word together. I'm just going to read the first chapter. And I want you to hang with me as we're going to go over four major points in it. So let's look at it together. Jonah chapter 1, verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city. By the way, notice all the repetition in here, okay? Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. That's the complete opposite way, all right? To flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. That's a hard word to say. Have you ever tried to say that word, Tarshish? It's hard, you should try it. So he paid the fare, oh, sorry. See, he went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Do you have any wonderings where he's going? Tarshish. He's going away from the Lord to flee the presence of the Lord. Notice some other things you'll see that are repeated when he says arise and call out. Notice when you see the words evil. Notice when you see the words great or any adjective thereof. Most of the adjectives are from the same word in the Hebrew. You'll see increasingly, exceedingly, those kind of words. Those are all for that same word of great or greater. It goes on, verse 4, but the Lord, the Lord hurled, there's another one of those repetition words, the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid. That's another one of those repeated words. And each cried out to his God, And they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. That was a common thing in the ancient world to see like God tell who is the one that's at fault. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. And then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? This is all about his identity. And he said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord didn't fear him too much. He's running away from him. The God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly or greatly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. By the way, you'll notice I didn't go into the next verse. That's what you're reading, some of you, because you can't stop yourselves. That's because really that next verse goes with the next chapter. These chapters and verse numbers came later. That part goes for next week, so just hold off. Reading are in verse 16 where it says, Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Listen, Jonah is called, he says, God says, Arise, look at verse 1 and verse 2, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Nineveh was one of the greatest cities in the ancient world around this time. Huge. And the people there were devastating to those they conquered. And they had had some of their lands taken by Israel when Israel came and inhabited the land under God's direction, and under God's leading and victories. And they had taken over that. And so for this guy who's a prophet, declared as a prophet of the Lord, to then be told to go to them and to declare to them, basically to repent of their sin, is a big quandary for this prophet. Everybody in Israel is looking at this guy thinking, this is a prophet of God but they're also looking at him thinking that he's all about them as Israel for his countrymen and for his nation. And that that's the kind of guy he would be, that's the kind of prophet he'd be prophesying for. But instead, God calls him to go to the worst of the worst and to go and declare to them their evil, knowing that God's purpose in doing that sort of thing is for him to bring about repentance and mercy in them. Mercy to them, repentance in them. So Jonah knows it, so he's got a big quandary on his hands. He's got to decide, is he going to do what he knows God's calling him to do, or is he going to, is he going to do what he thinks everybody else will want him to do, or maybe he's afraid of what will happen to him when he gets there. We don't exactly know the mind of Jonah at this point because it isn't so clear, but look what happens in it when he says, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. We see that mentioned several times. Fleeing from the presence of the Lord. In fact, the most direct way of saying that is in the Hebrews, fleeing from the face of the Lord. It's been our problem ever since the garden. As soon as sin entered the world, they sought refuge from the presence of God as he walked in the garden. It's our problem today. As soon as we sin, we run from the face of the Lord. And if we're not purposely Seeking after him, we tend to act like God's not even present with us. Just like Jonah was running from it, we do it inadvertently, even when we're not thinking about him. But today I'm going to show you basically four things, four points I want you to see in this text that will help us as we understand what is to Jonah God's infuriating grace throughout this calling on him. And I want you to understand in this first chapter as we look at it, some things in this kind of precursor to the rest of the story, the setup for the story, to understand some things that might help us even in our time today. So I'm going to give you those four things and I'm going to unpack them. So the first of those things is the great delusion of our disobedience. The great delusion of our disobedience. And secondly, we're going to talk about the grave danger of our disobedience. And thirdly, we're going to talk about God's sovereignty, how it is greater than our disobedience. Praise the Lord. And then we're going to talk about God's mercy, how it is also greater than our disobedience. These are good news things. So let's break these down. I'm going to be referencing back into the story because it's such a good narrative. We're going to be all over the place. So hang with me and just follow through with me on, a, on a more of a narrative style today as we unpack this. So first, let's talk about the great delusion of our disobedience. By delusion, I mean exactly what I'm saying, that we are thinking something when we're disobedient, but it is delusional in the reality that God has placed us. All of the world is under God's sovereign hand all the time. And so for us to act in a way that would say that God is not sovereign over all things is delusional and insane by its very definition. And so I want us to look at the delusion, the great delusion of our disobedience. When Jonah was faced with God's infuriating grace, he chose to disobey and run the other way. This is delusional behavior. And it doesn't just rest with Jonah, that's how we are often. Sometimes we're not even so sensitive to the Holy Spirit, that we don't even know what God's telling us because we're not spending any time in the Word, or maybe we're not spending any time in prayer, or we're walking consumed with the world around us and not recognizing God's presence in us as believers and recognizing His work around us. We don't have eyes to see because we have not been spending time with Him. And so therefore, we don't even hear the message. But Jonah heard it. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out to it, for their evil has come up before me. This is the calling. The truth is, though, You cannot escape the presence or face of God. We try to do it, right? We try to even kid ourselves when we embark in a sinful way of disobedience, whether not doing what we should do or doing what we should not do. We act as though God's not there watching us. Because if we recognized he was, we would probably not be doing that thing or we'd probably be doing what we should be doing, right? We act as if God is not there. We look at Jonah and think, what crazy Jonah? But it's what we do all the time. Why did a prophet of God believe he knew better than God? That's a great question. If a proven prophet of God can become delusional, he's declared a prophet. In the scriptures, it makes it very clear that he is. If a proven prophet of God can become delusional, is it far-fetched that we also might become delusional when it comes to our relationship with God? Is there a possibility that you or I are delusional about our relationship with God even right now? What might be the cause, the root cause of such delusion? Have you ever thought about that? That maybe what you think you're in a relationship with God may not be a right relationship with God. Or maybe things you think about who God is and what he's calling us to do might not be exactly what he's calling us to do or exactly who he is. That's a real problem because we're worshiping the God that is in your mind and it should be informed by the scriptures, but often our minds do not conform to the scriptures. In fact, all of our lives should be spent conforming our minds and our hearts and our actions to the God of scripture. And every day we have more to learn of his grace and mercy and his personhood. So what might be the root cause? Galatians 5.17 says, For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Look, we might become delusional because we are not listening to God in order to know his will for our lives. Like I mentioned earlier, the word, or in prayer with God, speaking in relationship, conversation with him. But I find that pride, yep, you, yours, mine, pride is often a precursor to the delusion of disobedience in our lives. Pride in our past blessings can lead us to disobedience. Because we think that God has blessed us before, we think that God is going to continue to bless us no matter what we do. We don't have to really talk with God about what's next or look in his word to find out what he wants in this situation. We're we're his people. He's just going to bless us. But that's not the way it works. This can even be all kinds of levels of pride. It can be nationalistic pride. In fact, one commentator says, when loyalty to his people and loyalty to the word of God seem to be in conflict, Jonah chose to support his nation over taking God's love and message to a new society. It could be nationalistic pride in ourselves, in our own country. But know this disobedience to God is always worse than disappointing men or women. Whatever God is telling us to do, we must do it. No matter what the cost is, no matter how it appears to others, no matter how it's received, We must always be obedient to what God calls us to. And you may think, well, God hasn't called me to anything. Well, then you don't understand that the word of God is always calling us to something. Every time we read it, every time we look into it, God is calling us to be different, to be more like Jesus. Calling us to be more on mission like Jesus. Calling us to repent of our sins, to be more like Jesus. Calling us to become more humble, more servant-minded, more loving, more generous, more peaceful, all the things that we see in the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians. This pride can be all kinds of prides that lead us away from that. It can be ethnic pride where we have racism that curls up in us. And you think, well, I don't have much of that. I'm working on that. Well, that's, that's good. If you say them or those or speak derogatorily about people and you have reasons for it, most likely those reasons aren't really valid in the eyes of the Lord. It could be an ethnic Pride problem. It could be economic pride. Have you ever just walked by someone and recognized how much they don't have and wondered if they're going to go for your wallet? You ever just wonder if you park next to that car, if it's going to be okay to park there, they may ding your doors? It's so subtle. We don't see it or recognize it most of the time. It could be intellectual pride. They just don't understand. I know better. It could also be moral pride. Well, if they would just act right. Here's a litmus test for us. Let me give you two litmus tests. questions. Am I unwilling to surrender any truths or commands of Scripture? Am I unwilling to surrender to any truths or commands of Scripture? If we do that, we are supplanting God's will with our will, just like Jonah. Or can I find any reason to think that any part of Scripture does not apply to me if we are replacing ourselves above God? It's a pride issue. It's a root issue. Let me say it again as I close down this first point. No past obedience, no past blessings can ever substitute for present obedience to the Word of God. In fact, our past obedience and blessings only magnify our shame in our current disobedience if we're not being obedient. Do you understand us? Well, look what we've done before. Look what I did yesterday. Look what God did in blessing me. I'm good with God. That magnifies our shame if we're walking in disobedience to a command of God. It is delusional Disobedience. is not pretty, but it is often great delusion on our part. Secondly, I want us to see here the grave danger of our disobedience. It's all over the place here, right? It's easy to see. Disobedience is an extremely dangerous endeavor. Some storms are the result in our lives or the result of our own disobedience. That's what's happening to Jonah here, right? Jonah's walking into a storm, running from God, trying to flee the presence of God. And he even says, when asked, I'm a Hebrew, I fear the Lord, but not right now. I fear the Lord, the one who is the God creator, sustainer of the sea of the land. And yet he's on the sea thinking he can get away. Delusional. It's dangerous. It looks like he's about to be killed in a storm and everybody with him. Some storms are the result of other people's disobedience, as we see. This particular storm seems to be rising up, not because of the mariners who are pagans, not because of the the captain of the ship, but because of Jonah. He even says it in here, that's how we know. That's not their problem that caused it, but they're being issued problems because of it. Some storms are the result of something else else altogether that we may never know this side of eternity or even then. But what we can know is that our, our own disobedience often leads to storms in our own life. One simple truth is this. Disobedience also often creates collateral damage. Just how it works. When we refuse to follow the Lord and to be obedient to his leading, it causes collateral damage. It happens that way in my own life. When I refuse to be the man I should be for my wife or my children, it creates relationship problems between me and my wife or me and my children. When I'm not gentle or loving or merciful or gracious, it creates problems in our relationship. Collateral damage because of my sin. Another basic truth is this, the grave danger of our disobedience, listen, even though that storm is not coming on these guys because of their disobedience, it is good for us to note that all of us deserve this type of destruction because of our disobedience to God. Every single one of us deserve the recompense of our sinful disobedience, yet God is merciful to us because he does not bring that down on our heads every time we disobey, which is every day. And when you disobey an infinitely eternal God who is all holy and just, you should receive just recompense and payment for that, punishment for that. Yet he does not give that to us because of his mercy. He's passed over our former sins. Because of the blood of Jesus, he's given us mercy and time to repent of those if you've never put your hope and faith in Jesus. And if you have, he's covering you now with the blood of Christ. But all of us deserve that type of rest. So let us not even now have pride that makes us look upon others, even Jonah, and think, that sorry guy, if he'd have just straightened up. If he'd have just listened to the Lord. But let us find that we are Jonah. We are much too much like Jonah. All right, now we're about to get down in the text. Are you ready? Here we go. God's sovereignty, the third note, God's sovereignty is greater, always greater than our disobedience. No matter how far Jonah ran from God and toward Sheol, that means death, you'll see this in a minute, he could not outrun God's sovereignty, and neither can we. Ever. No matter how far we run, I thought I ran from God's sovereignty for years into all the things I endeavored to do to find value for myself in the eyes of others and in my own eyes and in my own heart. But the entire time, God was using all those things to put me into a place to become the man I am today, good or bad, for His glory, which is always good. We cannot outrun His sovereignty. Jonah is trying to flee from God's sovereign presence in a downward spiral of delusional behavior. Sound familiar to any of us? We watch it in others. We don't often see it in ourselves. He sought to flee from God's presence so he would not have to call out to Nineveh to repent of their sins. He didn't want to be a part of giving mercy to pagans. Those daggum pagans, that's our problem. I'm not going to take that mercy to those guys. I'm sure we could find ourselves saying similar things in our hearts of others. He tried to flee God's presence by going down to Joppa, verse 3, and he found a ship going to Tarshish, so he paid the fare and went on board to go with him to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. And then we see that he not only did that, but there he paid the price of that fare to get on the boat and go down into it, It says going down, down again. And then Jonah goes down into the inner part of the ship and laid down to go to sleep. He's going down, 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 down. That's the path. But even in the depths of his disobedience, Jonah could not escape God's sovereign presence. Hallelujah. Neither can we. Jonah was running from giving pagans an opportunity to receive God's mercy, but God brought pagans to call out Jonah to repent and receive mercy. That's the kind of God we serve. Giving Jonah another opportunity, look at verse six. So the captain came and said to him, what do you mean you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. That's reiterated from verse two. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. Same wordings, exactly. Arise and call out. But here again, Jonah refused to call out to God or to call out to even these seafaring pagans regarding their need to repent and believe. What are these guys doing? They're calling out to their gods, their false gods. They're crying out to them, and they call him out to do the same, but he doesn't do it. See, Jonah refused to go to the great city of Nineveh, this pagan city, and offer pagans mercy. So Jonah then became the evil that led other pagans to receive mercy from God. Look at verse 2 again. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. So he's supposed to go to them and bring them repentance. But well, look what happens We look at verse 7. When they got him up, they said, and they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. Tell us who you are. He says, what is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven. He made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. See, he became in his disobedience the evil that he was called to go preach against to Nineveh, so that these other pagans could actually come to mercy. Keep going, verse 11. Then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land. Look, even the pagans are being more generous than him. They're like, we don't want to kill you. We're going to try to row back to dry land. He didn't care about them. But they're showing great mercy. He wouldn't go to the pagans with the gospel of grace, but they're showing him grace. They're trying to row back to land, but they realized they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, verse 14, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life. Look, they're calling out to the Lord. And, And notice this. They're actually using the word in the Hebrew, Yahweh. They're not talking to their little G gods anymore. They're talking to the God of the universe, the one true God. And they say these words, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life. They're actually asking for forgiveness for throwing this guy into the water, saving their lives. O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood for you, O Lord. There it is again, Yahweh have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. He told, the, he, he, told the Hebrew, he told the sailors that he was a Hebrew and that he feared God, but he actually wasn't fearing, or actually that word is also translated worshiping. Isn't that cool that the Hebrew word for fearing is also translated worshiping? To fear him is to worship him. They were fearing the Lord more than Jonah was. These pagans were the only ones who actually feared and worshipped him. And true fear of the Lord always leads to righteous obedience to the Lord. Look at it again in verse 15 and 16. So they picked up Jonah, hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Some argue that this, these guys weren't believers at this point. But what I see in verse 15 and 16, then the men feared the Lord exceedingly. That's that word great again in the Hebrew, old. They, they feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. This is not like jail cell conversion. This is after the fact. They feared him exceedingly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to the Lord. They committed themselves to the Lord. This is a pagan seeing the mercy of God through their obedience to him and now they are vowing to that Lord. God's sovereignty is always greater than our disobedience. Praise the King. Jonah ran. And what happened? He used Jonah to bring salvation to others who did not know him otherwise. Through a terrible storm, he was enduring. God's sovereignty is always greater than our own disobedience. Praise the Lord. And lastly, God's mercy is greater than our disobedience. Thank you, Lord, for that. That your mercy is greater than our disobedience, Lord. James 2.13 says, for judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Jonah didn't care enough about the pagans in Nineveh. He didn't care enough about the pagans on this boat to obey God, to take them the message of mercy that God had given him. He didn't care enough about them. And Jonah didn't seem to care about these sailors until he was face to face with them. When he's face to face with them and they're asking, what should we do? What can we do to be saved? He says, throw me over the side. And you may think he just had a death wish because it seems like he did going down, down, down to Sheol, right? But really what you see there is a little bit of compassion, I believe, in Jonah. He knows what will solve the problem. He says, throw me over. When they were face to face and he was with them in the midst of the terror of God's wrath, Here we finally see some mercy coming from Jonah towards pagans, even though it seems to be half-hearted. As Leslie Allen writes, the character of these seamen has evidently banished his nonchalant indifference and touched his conscience. God used their fear to drive him to mercy. Isn't it ironic? Jonah was fleeing from God to keep from showing mercy to pagans, but that's exactly what he ends up doing anyway. What a good God we serve. Whatever the reason, it appears that Jonah finally decides that his disobedience should not be the reason that others, even these pagans, should perish. So Jonah, seeing that they're going to die because of him, offers himself up and tells them, I'm the one with whom God is angry, so throw me overboard. That'll fix your problem. His wrath will stop. And in this moment, Jonah becomes, of sorts, a substitutionary sacrifice for those men on the boat. He puts himself out there to die in their place. And at this point, this points us to the full and ultimate deliverance of mercy to all of us. The substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf. Jesus is the greater Jonah. When you go back and just think of the story of Jesus in the, in the Sea of Galilee when the storm comes up. We talked about it a few weeks ago. They're both in the boat, except that Jonah goes running from God, and Jesus goes in the will of God. They're both asleep in the boat when a storm comes up, and they're woken up by people saying, hey, don't you care? We're going to die. And Jonah doesn't really care, but Jesus does. And Jonah gets up and says, hey, yeah, I'm the reason why this is here, and Jesus is saying, no, I'm here because of this, and my reason I'm being here is to save you from this. And Jonah says, "I've got to be thrown over the side to stop this." And Jesus says, "No, I've got to be thrown over the side to stop and save everybody that would believe in me, not just those sailors coming from, going to Tarshish from Joppa." And Jesus was thrown into the ultimate storm of God's wrath for our sin. And when He went under the water and died in our place, our wrath that we deserve for our disobedience was totally laid upon him, and he drank it all down to the end. So here it is, Jonah's disobedience stops the storm for these guys, but Jesus' sacrifice stops the storm for all of us, the eternal storm of God's wrath and justice. This is how it points to the greater and right Savior, who is Jesus. And this is the one who even though we will never deserve it and never earn it, and nobody ever will, and the one who came to seek and to save the lost died in our place on the cross so that we could be brought into the family of God, even though we will never deserve to be called brothers and sisters of him. And he loved us so much that even though he lets us go through storms in this life, we can know that the greatest of all storms has been overcome because he endured it for us, even to the point of death, death on the cross. And although Jonah reluctantly gave himself up to stop the storm, Jesus wholeheartedly gave himself up to be thrown into the storm of God's wrath that we deserve because he loves you and me that much, even in our sin. Praise the Lord. And when we focus our hearts and minds on Jesus enduring that storm for us on the cross, even to the point of his death, it changes our heart towards disobedience. And it leads us to want to follow him and do whatever he says because we see how great he's loved us and done what his father wanted and what he wanted even when we didn't want him. And we will know we can trust him even in these storms that are so hard for us. We will know we can trust him and surrender to his will no matter the calling he places on our lives for God who substitutes himself and suffers so that we may live and be free is a God we can always trust. His mercy is our only hope. And he's already given it for us in Jesus. His mercy, so great, has a name. A name above all names. And his name is Jesus. Jesus Christ, the Lord. So let us put our hope and trust in him today. 1 Timothy 1 says this, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. He goes on and says, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. All praise the name of Jesus. If you've never put your hope and faith in Jesus, today is the day of repentance. Let us hope in Jesus. I'm going to pray for our souls. And I'll be here if you need me until the last one of you is gone today. But you need not me, you need Jesus. So run to him and I'll be here to pray with you if you like. Father, help us to repent and believe in Jesus this morning. Reveal our pride to us, reveal our disobedience and lead us to the path of righteousness for your name's sake. Show us, Lord, where you are calling us and whatever the calling is, Lord, whether it to, to be doing something we have not done, to, be, to not do the things we should not do, to, to go somewhere we should go, to stay somewhere where we are, whatever it is, Lord, that we would be obedient to your word always, every time, every moment that we would be obedient. For you, Lord, are worth it. For your mercy is our only hope and you provided that mercy for us in Jesus. Praise the all-glorious one, your son Jesus who points to your goodness and your mercy and your kindness. And it's in Jesus' name we pray and ask these things. Amen. Thank you for listening to the sermon audio from 12th Street Baptist Church. Feel free to share this with anyone you meet, and we pray that this sermon helps you to be more like Jesus as 12th Street seeks to make apprentices of Jesus by being a family for family.